the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back Wednesday, January 26, 2022. In re the announcement of Justin Stephen Breyer's retirement from the Supreme Court, there's going to be some, not a lot, but some gnashing of teeth. Some and not a lot because it is a Democrat nominating a Democrat to replace a Democrat. It won't change the composure of the court or the general vote counting that takes place, which is roughly right now six to three, but not a hard six, really a four to three with two mysteries. But the degree to which there will be growls or gnashing or politics here, they started this. They started it by politicizing the court, the entire judiciary, by making the third article of the Constitution a super first and second article, that is a super legislature co-opting and undermining democratic processes where what is lost or disfavored at the ballot box or by initiative or by a state or federal legislature, they they take to the court to win or overturn and win or overturn not on any violation of the Constitution, but on pure and raw political grounds that they just place a cloth they wove and called constitutional over those politics, policies, and political preferences they want. This was not the way it was supposed to be. Alexander Hamilton put it well in the Federalist Papers, quote, the judiciary from the nature of its functions will always be the least dangerous to the political rights of the Constitution because it will be the least in a capacity to annoy or injure them. The executive not only dispenses the honors, but holds the sword of the community. The legislature not only commands the purse, but prescribes the rules by which the duties and rights of every citizen are to be regulated. The judiciary, on the contrary, Hamilton continues, has no influence over either sword or purse. No direct, excuse me, no direction either of the strength or of the wealth of the society and can take no active resolution whatsoever. It may truly be said to have neither force nor will, but merely judgment and must ultimately depend upon the aid of the executive arm, even for the efficacy of those judgments, close quote. Dating back to the founding era as well, we know what judicial review is supposed to be. And quite clearly, John Marshall issued it in Marbury versus Madison in 1803. Is an act of a legislature repugnant to a clear command of the Constitution? That's the question. Point to the law passed and tell us how it violates a constitutional provision. And that was your court and judiciary up until the middle of the 20th century, i.e. before the progressive era. But come the progressives, and starting with Woodrow Wilson's appointees, we watched as a political movement took over an entire article of the Constitution, transmogrifying it into a super legislature, an addendum to Article 1, if you will, rather than its own Article 3, where it was supposed to be. And thus, what we have received are inventions of constitutional doctrines, not words, not dictates, doctrines that have been invented by clever lawyers and judges. If a law does not touch on a constitutional provision, plumb your thesaurus, and invent one. 
How else does it become constitutional doctrine that, quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life, close quote. How is that in any way constitutional or from the Constitution or about our founding? Or how about, quote, specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras formed by emanations from those guarantees that help give them life and substance, close quote. These are words of clay invented by craftsmen long after the founding, all in the 20th century, that have now been burned into the kiln of hardened judicial and constitutional reasoning. I submit with these kinds of inventions, and there are many more, it's impossible to say we have in any way a serious constitution or law. Our constitution, after all, remember, was written by men very skilled in philosophy, politics, and language. And they knew that words meant things and that what the words meant or things should mean should matter. They never would have, because they didn't, throw to the third branch of government a tool of interpretation based on penumbras and emanations of what they said or each individual's definition of the mystery of existence so as to override or short-circuit the normal and permissible functions of Articles 1 and 2 or your votes on matters of local as well as national concern. When conservatives have their chances at nominations, this is what is at stake. Restoration of constitutional order and interpretation and arrest of the runaway jury of Senate-confirmed judges or greasing the skids of that path we were already on. Hence, you see the yelling and protests at the Senate Judiciary Committee when a conservative is nominated. It's all just raw politics for the left. Of course, the judiciary is about politics for them, so no reason not to upset all decorum to push political points of view. That's what the left does on the ground. That's what the left does as an organized party and their judicial, really political, philosophy. How else do you think it can pass with impunity for the majority leader of the United States Senate to stand in front of the Supreme Court, name Republican-appointed justices by name, and say, Shout, two cheers, we are coming for you. You won't know what hit you. But then lead an impeachment over a president who said, march peacefully and patriotically. Let me take a moment to undress just a little of this. When Brett Kavanaugh was nominated, a U.S. senator from Hawaii stated he was picked by, quote, right-wing organizations that argue for conservative positions, close quote. Get that trick of the language? Right-wing to argue for conservative positions. Why do I, what do I always say? Conservative positions have no purchase and do not deserve a fair hearing, much less an opportunity to govern if you're a Democrat. We're conservative, so we're tolerated, but never to govern, never to win elections, never to have positions of power. Now for the right wing part. She's talking about the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation. Those are the two organizations that are always identified by the left as if they are some secret meeting of a white citizens council. Give me a break. They are mainstream conservative libertarian organizations. But conflating it all as extreme is the task of the Democrats because once we can make such a conflation in the mind of Americans stick, then we can write off all Republicans as extreme and, of course, not able to govern. Let me give you one more example of what I'm talking about regarding the tainting and tarnishing of the opposing party is outside 
the realm of legitimacy. When Brett Kavanaugh was nominated, one U.S. senator from California named Harris gave a speech indicting Kavanaugh for being a lifelong conservative Republican. It's exactly what she said twice by my count in her speech, maybe more, but definitely twice. A lifelong conservative Republican. Well, imagine that. I wonder if Kamala has been a lifelong liberal Democrat or even a left-wing Democrat. And if so, should she be disqualified for offices or positions? No. The problem is we have a one-party state here where it's okay to be lifelong left-wing or liberal Democrat, not conservative and Republican. So when our appointees are from the school of Felix Frankfurter, appointed by FDR, or for that matter, John Marshall, appointed by John Adams, you are too extreme. These, of course, were some of the giant oaks of American law and history, your Frankfurters, your Marshalls. But the left is not about building or preserving. It's about tearing down, or as Barack Obama put it, fundamentally, transform, fundamentally transforming America. Let me go back to judicial philosophy just a moment. Richard Newhouse put it this way, politics, as Aristotle teaches, is free persons deliberating the question, how ought we to order our life together? Democratic politics means that the people deliberate and decide the question. In the American constitutional order, the people do that through debate, elections, and representative political institutions. But is that true today? Has it been true for the last 50 years? Is it not, in fact, the judiciary that deliberates and answers the really important questions entailed in the question? How ought to we order our life together? Again and again, questions that are properly political are legalized and even speciously constitutionalized. Now, one way we have organized our politics freely and safely through today has been a quite general understanding that when we vote for presidents as much as when we vote for senators, we're voting in part for a judicial philosophy because of the appointment power. Democratic senators do not think that way. They assume they are entitled to govern the courts because they are standing against, they tell you this all the time, enemies of the Constitution, as they have arrogated to themselves their sole philosophy as being consistent with that Constitution. But what they have done is taken Benjamin Franklin's statement, a republic if you can keep it, and turned it into a democracy we will use any power we can to take to change it or fundamentally transform it. The speculation will run riot, riot today that this is to make room for Kamala Harris. Frankly, it doesn't matter to me. She is probably an actually more moderate, believe it or not, than 90% of law school faculty members who vote Democrat. I seriously believe that. As nutty as you think she is, as incompetent as you surmise, she's at least from time to time had to try to appeal to masses and work in a semi-real world, and she has not had time or the brain power to marinate in and contribute to the critical legal theories and arcana of Marxist legal doctrine that now dominate our law schools. This presents one other problem we'd better be prepared for. Stephen Breyer is about the best Democrat appointee to the court we will have seen since the 1970s, and we will not see his like again. The valence and fuselage of the Democratic Party having shifted so far from, say, Dukakis to Marx. Naturally, the question will arise. Why do they put up guaranteed candidates who never disappoint them? And we put up people like John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh, who continually do. In a word, 
too much cowardice is one answer. Another is that too many in our leadership think there is value in chasing moderacy for the sake of not moderacy, but the sake of building consensus. On that point, we are going to have the fight anyway. You put up the moderate, they're going to be fought and attacked by the Democrats, just as if they are Sam Alito or Amy Comey Barrett or Clarence Thomas. So we're going to have that fight anyway. So I say quit chasing fool's gold when it's our turn. So at the end of the fight, because at the end of the fight, I'd rather a Thomas or a leader, excuse me, or a Samuel Alito after the battle scars than I would rather a Roberts or a Kavanaugh. If we're going to have the fight, let's make it worth something. But there's another thing operating here, too. We know something the Democrats have long ago abandoned, and that is a sincere problem for us as an intramural matter. But there is a lot that there is a lot more diversity of conservative thought than there is liberal left thought. And nowhere is this more true than in legal circles. Even Thomas and Alito have disagreements that end up in our jurisprudence, although hopefully and I think mostly centered on respect for the Constitution as a constitution, a respect for people and a respect for democracy, our Republican form of government and respect for, yes, the greatness of this country. It is end of day respect for people's brains as well as their stomachs, because at bottom, it's a true respect for people and not robots and certainly not the dictatorial belief that we are always right all of the time with a certitude that requires nothing short of totalitarianism from a one party state or a singular point of view on matters of great public debate that don't always lend themselves to resolution by, say, the Sonia Sotomayors of the world who in the service of all that control, can think 3,500 equals 100,000. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. One last um, thing on the uh, – well, two last things on the uh, announcement of Stephen Breyer's retirement. Uh, It's not really an announcement. He didn't announce it. And evidently, he's a little upset that it's circulating. In fact, President Joe Biden today had to take a question from a reporter and answer it by saying Stephen Breyer will announce his retirement on his timeline when it's ripe for him. Although the wisdom is he had decided to retire this year and it leaked out. There's been speculation as to who would leak it and why such a thing would leak. I can appreciate why. I can understand why, uh, particularly if you're in the political operations of this administration, you'd want to leak it because when you see, as you saw this Sunday on the Sunday shows or the reportage afterwards, all the uh, Democrats losing faith in the Biden administration, uh, you look around, you wet your finger, you put it in the wind and you think about what could unite us, what could rally us together, what could we get over all our disappointments by, ah, yes, saving the court. But it's not really saving the court, right, when you're replacing a lib with a lefty. Um, but I suppose you, 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 have, you have a small window here, and everyone remembers the Ruth Bader Ginsburg problem, don't they? Remember that problem? She should have retired when Barack Obama was president. But she thought Hillary Clinton would win the presidency and she could get a few more years in before she had to retire, resign, or uh, 
slip the surly bonds of earth. She chose poorly, and the Democrats chose poorly, and the American people chose smartly. <laughs> they voted in Donald Trump. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, and it was Trump's seat to fill. So they, 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 they know what's a coming. And they have the Senate right now. They have the Senate presuming, presuming that the left hasn't so angered Joe Manson, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema that they have lost their votes on things of this kind of import. Let me just point out, I think it would be about the smallest thing to expect Joe or Kirsten Manchin or Cinema to vote against a Biden nominee to the Supreme Court because that's pretty much the crossing of the Rubicon. You do that, that's a signal you're going to have to join the Republican Party. And I don't know if they're quite ready to do that yet. I just don't know if they are. And, of course, we would welcome them. We would welcome them with open arms. But let's also, before we say we're going to vote for them or give them money, Make sure they agree with us on at least 60 percent of the issues if it's not asking too much. At least 60. Not good enough for me in a general Republican primary, but for a brand new minted Republican who just left the Democratic Party. Yeah, let's make sure we have at least a bit of majority of their views on our side. And that, that's one thing to think about here. The other thing, this is going to pass mostly without comment by most people. Not the Arizona Women of Action who we had here yesterday and not on this show and not in a few other places. Although, note where it will get mentioned, it will only get mentioned by old-fashioned liberals. Conservatives have been cowed into not talking about this. I'll talk about it. And that is, notice the focus on who Stephen Breyer's replacement will be. Joe Biden during the campaign, promised that he would be the first president to nominate an African-American woman to the Supreme Court. And he is now being held to that promise. Jen Psaki fielded questions about it today. And yes, of course, Kamala Harris fits that description, although it doesn't. I, I, I don't think it's Kamala Harris. I, I, I just don't think so. And I, I can go into it more. Mostly because I think she'd find it a demotion. But has anyone has any did, did before the modern era did any president ever say I'm going to be the first president to nominate an ex because we don't have that representation on the Supreme Court? Did anyone say that about a region like a Westerner? Did anyone say it about someone who hadn't gone to Harvard or Yale? Did anyone say it about, you know, there are no Protestants on this court. You'd think that would be something to think about. Andrew Sullivan tweets, the replacement will be chosen only after the field is radically winnowed by open race and sex discrimination, which have gone from being illegal to celebrated in this country. Yeah, that's right. Thirty-four after the hour brings us my man John Dumbrey, the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. He has his own show here every Saturday morning at seven. 
the word on wealth right here on 960 The Patriot. J.D., how are you, man? You know, you and I, we need to see each other physically one of these days. I know. I know. Uh, happy January 26th. Happy January 26th. <laughs> yeah. Is every stock market now going to be for the rest of January like a Buccaneers-Rams game? Man, it's, but it was <laughs> the opposite today. Right? Yeah, I know. Monday but it, Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> it has you running all over the place, and then at the end it does a final save, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah we had yeah, a we final had, save today. We had a, a, an increase right at the open today. Yeah. A, a sharp, sharp rise. The Dow was up uh, almost 2%, the NASDAQ up over 3% today at the open. Uh, but, unfortunately, uh, midday, we were, we were waiting on the Fed uh, meeting, and, uh, of course, we heard the comments from uh, Fed Chair Powell, reiterating once again that the Fed's going to be uh, easy, uh, tightening on their monetary policy and also going to be raising rates maybe as early as March. Yep. Now, this is not new news. Uh, it's pretty consistent with what they've been saying here over the past few meetings. So it's really not a shock to the market. So I don't, I don't see any reason why we saw such a reaction. But uh, I still do like the uh, movement of the markets overall. We're seeing a lot of buying coming back into the market, even though there's this concern over inflation, which we understand, as well as the Fed beginning that tightening. Now, what does it mean to you and I? I mean, if we're going to be out there trying to borrow money, uh, there's potential you know, that it's going to be a little bit higher of an interest rate for us to borrow money. And that may hurt a lot of people out there who are on a you know, kind of a fence of whether or not they would qualify for a loan. They may have to buy something less valuable, and they may have to put more money down on that purchase. So that's ultimately what it's going to mean. So with this short-term interest rate hike, uh, that's that's the takeaway for individual consumers. That means money is more expensive. Money is more expensive. You're going to yeah, money to borrow is more expensive. Yeah, put it better. Money to borrow. Last week we talked about even credit card interest rates. They're already at a, an extreme high level, we you know, compared to everything else out there. But these are non-collateralized debts. You know, when we think about credit cards, if we default on a credit card, they can't foreclose on your house, right? Right. right. So, uh, but, uh, so those rates are expected to be a little higher because of the risk that the lender takes. But with all being said, uh, that's still an extremely high rate for uh, carrying debt on a credit card, and I always encourage individuals out there not to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, but those rates even are going to go up. So if you're paying 18, 19, 20% now, you may see your credit card rates go up to 20, 21, 22%. Oh, I have a feeling uh, we might even be talking about 25 by the end of the year. I think it could. It depends. But this effort, this effort, John, you, you, you're the expert, not me, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't over-speculate. But, but, but John, the question I have on this, on this, uh, this question, uh, as it relates to inflation is this should, on paper, at least, help the inflation problem, right? That's why the Fed's making these moves. Yeah. That's their their hope is that it's going to begin to bring the inflation levels down. It's going to be, you know, creating less, less money demand. sloshing around, right? Yeah, there'll be less demand out yeah. there, which would uh, give the economy a chance to catch up to itself. Uh, again, though, the labor issue is going to be with us for a while, as we know companies are suffering through this. And the pressures that it's putting on the individuals who are working, we've heard all about it in the medical profession, right, at the hospital level, the nurses and doctors, what they're going through uh, now. But it's, it's flowing over into everyday corporate life where people are leaving, managers are still tasked, tasked with 
you know, the specific goals set by the company with less staff. And it's putting a lot of pressure on people. And frankly, people are getting to a point of breaking and quitting and uh, or retiring early. And it's a kind of a domino effect that we're seeing. And it's going to take some time to repair all of that, which then ultimately, hopefully, will help alleviate some of the challenges we're having with supply. John, uh, it uh, it's always interesting to me because this never happened growing up, you know, when the most current news you could get would be the evening edition of the print newspaper. Do you remember those days? Do you remember the, sure, green, the green edition yeah. of the Arizona, what was it called? The Phoenix Gazette, I think. And it, well, I don't know if you were here in those days. But in any event, I'm always curious when it says after hours trading and right. uh, the companies uh, that, that, that seem to be busy on after hours trading. Maybe tomorrow you can, I know we've talked about it before, but for tomorrow, maybe we can talk a little bit about what that means. I'm always curious exactly. about and always find fascinating this issue of after-hours trading. Can we yeah. talk about that and a little know, tomorrow? You bet. Thank and you, you know John. I'm a positive person, so I want to end in a positive Okay. Note. We had Intel and we had Tesla report today. Again, oh, I love feeding, what Tesla reported. Leading on the top and bottom again. Yeah. So corporate earnings have been strong. Yeah. That's good leading into all of this. Oh, yeah. Tesla beat right. the expectations. Love yeah. that guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Securities Advisory Services offered to Client One Securities LLC. We're a pending and investment advisor, Glenn Kangan Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thanks, Seth. But I love you more, John. I love oh, you more. Thank you. Love All you right, brother. I'm Bye-bye. Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I like pulling down stars for our guests. One of my favorite and one of the brightest. He is our Robert Jackson Fellow in Constitutional Studies is Brett W. Johnson, partner with the Snell and Wilmer Law Firm. Brett Johnson, welcome back. Thanks for doing our weekly constitutional update. Really appreciate it. No problem, Seth. There's uh, the, the case I wanted to talk to you about today has to do with a lawsuit on race-based affirmative action policies involving, I guess it's now consolidated, two major schools, North Carolina and Harvard. Before we hit on that, though, obviously there's a big stirring over Stephen Breyer's retirement. I didn't know if you had a comment on that. If you do, great. If not, uh, we can move straight to the, uh, straight to the uh, merits of the uh, race, race cases. No, in, interesting about Justice Breyer, obviously a long, distinguished career, um, appointed by President Clinton back in 94 and, uh, you know, did some great service to, to the nation. And, you can, and just for as background for your listeners, the majority of U.S. Supreme Court opinions are unanimous or are really not disagreed because they're dealing with corporate law, tax, yeah. um, things that are basically innocuous. And, and he really did do some very good service, as well as even on cases that I might disagree with him, came out with a rational argument as to why he thought the law should go a different way. So, of course, want to give him great service, uh, acknowledge his service to the country. Um, but it is ironic, though, you know, already you hear in Congress as to who should replace yeah. him, yeah. and it's talking about uh, diverse candidates, which yeah. is ironic based off of, them taking these two cases on Monday that deal with affirmative action. <laughs> oh, nice segue. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, yeah. you put that together very well. I was quoting Andrew Sullivan earlier 
he put it strongly, he put it this way, he said the replacement will be chosen only after the field is radically winnowed by open race and sex discrimination, which have gone from being <laughs> illegal to celebrated and practiced by the President of the United States. Let's get to those cases. Yeah. Absolutely. If you think it's hard to agree with uh, to disagree with Andrew Sullivan, try agreeing with him, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly okay. right. <laughs> All right. So, so, so Baki is what I grew up with. That's that was yeah, the so big thing I. everyone said. Yeah, yeah. And going back to Baki, Baki was a, a Supreme Court case, nineteen seventy-eight. That basically University of uh, or the, uh, the University of California system uh-huh. um, was applying a quota system that they basically. You know, said a certain amount of minority candidates based off of your race were going to get into, and there were, there were slots that were set aside from them for them. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. You can't have quotas in public-based education. Okay. However, you can use race as a as a factor as part of your subjective analysis of a student applicant trying to get into the school. And that has really been our law all the way through. And there's a, a more recent case. Um, dealing with the University of Michigan uh, law school, actually Bollinger, guess, right? Uh, Bollinger, yeah. Bollinger, right. exactly. Either way, yeah. Ironically, mm-hmm. same, same, same day, same day. There's two Bollinger cases dealing with the University of Michigan. One for the law school, one for the undergraduate admissions. On the law school side, they upheld the the uh, the Balky case, the Balky case. But they and the undergraduate case again, same time. They said that that case was not legal because it applied a point system. For minorities, mm-hmm. that was too much like a quota system. Mm-hmm. So they, they, the Supreme Court has been pretty consistent since 1978. Um, however, with a change of um, the justices that are on um, the, the Supreme Court right now, obviously the, the proponent or the opponents of affirmative action in higher education are, are taking another stab at both Harvard and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. One of the interesting things that I think, I think, you you always please correct me where I'm wrong, that came out of the um, Bakke line that led to Bollinger's decision was that one of those interests that would allow the plus factor was diversity. It may have been, you know, identified as, as, as the main interest that would allow for such a thing, right? Do I have this effectively right? You do. So as part of um, when you're evaluating a candidate, again, on a case-by-case cases, that basis, which is very important, um, that, that you're allowed to look at, at an individual's diversity for purposes of furthering the education and, for, and furthering, you know, kind of like the, the melting pot of an institution that you're bringing in different perspectives from different people. And that diversity would just be a factor. And that's what Harvard is actually saying it's doing. It, right. It has a process. By the way, if anybody is trying to get their kid into Harvard or trying to get their kid into any college, go read the First yeah, Circuit yeah, Court of Appeals yeah. opinion on it because it will walk through the admissions yeah, process that's very a great tip. clearly. That's a really good yeah, tip. Anyway, it tells you what they're looking for. That's a great point. They, yeah, Exactly what they're looking for. So go Google it. But on the, on the tips, this is exactly what um, Harvard was doing, is that they would have several reads of a candidate's application, and during those different reads would give – in many cases, a tip to a minority candidate, but not of necessarily Asians. Asians right. during that subjective process were not. Right. So that's the subjective analysis. But even in what has Harvard has said in the last few days, which I find is interesting, is the objective analysis. 
that if the Supreme Court were to rule against Harvard's process, their African-American um, uh, uh, students would go from 14% to 6%. Right. Their Hispanics would go from 14% to 9%. Right. So when you apply that objective data, even using their own data, it's obviously something a little bit more systematic is going on with these tips at uh, Harvard. That's right. One of the briefs I read was from the National Association of Scholars, uh, a generally conservative organization uh, on the campuses, uh, and they pointed out something kind of interesting. Um, using that notion of, of creating a diverse campus as, 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 um, as justification for uh, using these kinds of, uh, these kinds of admission uh, requirements – they pointed out something interesting, that the reality of campus diversity is different from the kind of racial understanding uh, that history uh, would have handed us. In other words, diversity advocates, they write, have focused increasingly on group identity so that in a survey they conducted, you find 43 percent of colleges have segregated residences, 46 percent segregated orientation, 72 percent segregated graduation ceremonies. This notion of diversity that the court seems to like might not actually be the practices, the practice that the colleges seem to implement. Kind of interesting. It's very interesting. It actually goes to one thing that Chief Justice Roberts writes about often in opinions dealing with race, whether it be um, you know, voting rights or um, employment. And he, he always says it is a sordid business, this giving up by race. Yeah. And and that really kind of goes to the heart of it is that you you may have some good reasons to, to in, encourage these diversity issues, but yeah. in reality, at the end of the day, it, it leads to actually more, um, you know, separation of the different races. And, and the other thing that I think is, is also highlighted is – not all of these, you know, people think of these admissions uh, policies, affirmative admit, um, uh, action policies, that they're coming from more poor yeah. communities. Yeah. Right? We have yeah. to help out the African Americans yeah. from urban yeah. Chicago or the Latinos from southern Arizona. But in reality, a lot of these, these students, you because remember, you have to get all of the other factors. Yep. It is, these are from affluent families. Yep. So, so trying to equate this. Um, to just for race when, you, when you're adding in the other factors of, quite honestly, um, academic success and, and, and the other activities that you need to get into college, it's not necessarily what people think it is. It isn't. And it's really interesting that, uh, you know, if Harvard wanted to shift to a sincere economic affirmative action program, they didn't seem to do what that analysis would lead you to find if it comes to what those numbers would be among racial minorities. They just don't seem to have that interest. It's not really their interest. They want the color. They don't want the econ. That's what I think. That, that, I, I think that that's exactly right. And I like how you brought up the econ part of it because um, it, it always goes back, and I've mentioned this several times. Because I'm not really opposed Congress. to economic affirmative action. I, it doesn't well, seem either. to violate Absolutely. the 14th Amendment to me. It, it doesn't, right? If, if it's based off of economic factors... It definitely does not violate the 14th Amendment, which is based off of race. But um, economics plays a huge role yep. in this because yep. the hook to Harvard is very similar back to the Solomon Amendment on allowing military recruiters on campus. Harvard, Yale, they want that money you from bet. the federal government, you bet. billions and billions of dollars. You bet. It, they can have whatever university they want. They just can't take federal money yep. and discriminate at the same time. That's so that's right. that's what the issue is here. 
But of uh, note, going back to Justice Breyer for a second, he's announced that he's going to stay through this term. This case most likely will not be heard until the next term. That's right. Okay. That's so right. although it was taken up, it's and so we're going to have a whole brand new justice likely on the bench unless it, uh, that person's not able to get through Congress, which has happened before. Attorney General, the current Attorney General yeah, could not yeah, get through, yeah, for example, yeah, yeah. that um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next term. Stay close with us on that as everything else. Brett W. Johnson, well done, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. You betcha. Brett Johnson from Snell & Wilmer, SWLaw.com. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. Just reading from that National Association of Scholars brief, it is interesting how seriously this court might hang its hat on this notion. If diversity is one of the Supreme Courts or the leading Supreme Court reason that allows for these affirmative action programs that are being challenged – it's important to recognize what NAS put, points out. The reality of campus diversity in, 21, 20, in 2022 is sadly different from the ideal of interracial understanding and cross-pollinization intellectually. A diverse, as diversity advocates have focused increasingly on group identity rather than racial reconciliation, the dream of integration has given way to neo-segregation in American colleges, featuring separate institution, institutions, separate dormitories, and thus even de facto segregated classrooms, especially when you look at certain studies that show where the students choose to take classes and what they want to major in. At Duke University, for example, white more bla- uh, a study at Duke found that while more black than white freshmen intended to major in national sciences, engineering, the hard stuff, they switched to less demanding majors over the course of their college career, and only 32% of black students graduated in those in those fields. Segregated dorms, segregated graduations, segregated classrooms, segregated majors. Oh, yes, for the purpose of diversity and inclusion. Oh, yes, where war is peace. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.